are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. What's up, everybody? My name is Jay Helms. I'm the founder of this movement and podcast known as the W2 Capitalist. Today, I'm joined by multifamily syndicator Ernest Harbin. Did I get that right? Ernest Harbin. Ernest, let me give you a little brief bio of Ernest, and then we're going to dive into some questions and just chat a little bit. But Ernest has spent his entire professional career focused on real estate, which has shaped the company's investment philosophy, excuse me, we were just talking about how I don't have enough coffee yet, and attracted him to real estate investing as a viable investment partner that is trustworthy and dependable. Now, this is all coming from his website, apartmentbuys.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. But Ernest and I were just talking, Ernest is a, Ernest, are you are a native of Georgia or you just spent most of your life in Atlanta? I am a native, born and raised. Born and raised. And we were just talking about how you spent your entire career focused on uh, entire lives focused on investing in real estate, which is, which is pretty cool. So you've actually never had a W-2 job, right? The only W-2 job I've ever literally had was uh, just out of high school. I sold Subway sandwiches for about three months. Yeah. And I sold cars for about six months. And then I realized that uh, he couldn't be the man working for the man. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, <laughs> Let's get the let's get the uh, important stuff out of the way first. Uh, Georgia Bulldog or, or Georgia Tech? You know, um, I don't even watch football. Oh, really? Okay. All right. uh, I'm, uh, a, I'm a I'm a motocross guy. I, you know, that was the thing I noticed about you. So you're an adrenaline. I saw you uh, on your Facebook page. I was trying to stalk you a little bit on on social media, and uh, you've got some uh, some photos on there of you doing some pretty kick-ass stuff in my opinion yeah right and uh, and those pictures are just within the last couple of years too and i'm 48 years old oh wow okay okay probably 49 now so are you just a natural adrenaline junkie or do you do you just enjoy something about motocross yeah actually i'm not really an adrenaline junkie i actually just was uh really naturally gifted on a motorcycle and just was uh went really fast (laughs) (laughs) i want to go fast mama yeah, I was like uh, I was like the Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby, man, I just want to go fast. How did you yeah. How did you discover you had a natural talent for uh, being on a motorcycle? Well, when I was a little baby, my dad actually rode a little bit, you know, okay. um, some races, and I I picked up on it. And all the years I was younger, and, and most kids actually wind up um, getting started at an early age. Yeah. I actually didn't even wind up getting started until I was fifteen years old. Oh wow! And, uh, okay. And I basically went from first bike I ever had at 15 to turning pro in three years and rode pro for two years. Wow. Okay. That's went, incredible. Went, it, that's, that's a whole nother story in and of itself. It's yeah. cool actually, but you know, not real estate oriented at all, but it's still a pretty cool story. It's not, but I'm, I'm really intrigued. So, uh, let's dive into that for a minute. 
<laughs> so do you still do you still race now professionally or no? No, um, I actually quit racing professionally in 1991. Okay, um, and then over the years, I just kept riding and racing, and um, and, and you know, and uh, actually transitioned into off road for a while, and did um, uh, and got was really fast at that. I got to expert level. I never got to a pro level, but I did get to expert level, and uh, and was going to do the Baja 1000 in yeah. Mexico, and got hurt really bad right before that, and never made it. So I just kept racing uh, off-road and motocross all through the years. And the last year I raced was uh, till end of 2017. And uh, my bike actually got stolen. And I just <laughs> never went and bought another one. And, uh, and I had, so I haven't ridden it in about two years, two, two and a half years. But, um, but yeah, I um, just, I, I, you, know, you know, I guess it's kind of like the story of uh, being around the right people. You know, yeah. they always, you know, that whole regurgitated saying, you know, your, your network is your net worth, but right. your top five people. Well, I actually wind up getting, uh, by sheer coincidence, got to be really good friends with, um, through via another friend, the factory guys, the, you know, the guys who were getting, you know, the number one guys like you see on TV, um, you know, they were getting paid. And my dad, and that at the time, having private motocross facilities was not very common. And okay. my dad had a, you know, a heavy equipment background. So he built me a racetrack and we actually invited the teams to come ride on it and they accepted. So I wind up, you know, we, had, we literally had the factory teams coming to our house, riding on our track and I just wow. rode with them. And by me riding with them, I just got fast, really fast. I bet. They would, yeah. you know, show me what I was doing wrong. And, you know, when you chase guys that are faster, you just get faster. So let's switch to, I want, well, before we switch to in real estate investing, but, how did you, what's the difference between, uh, off-roading and motocross? Motocross is basically, uh, you know, it's a small closed circuit where you can, uh, you know, where they jump the hills and, yep. and you can watch them, you know, so supercross is stadium and motocross is outdoor and okay. then off-road is, uh, primarily essentially just riding in the woods or the desert. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. I don't. I don't think anybody was expecting that they were going to get a lesson in motocross, but uh, or uh, <laughs> it's not normal. It's not, it's not normal for sure. It's not. That's why I'm so intrigued by it. You know, and and, and um, having this uh, podcast get introduced to so many different walks of life, and, and I'm always intrigued of, you know, because I grew up. Uh, my dad raced motorcycles when he was younger, before us, and before my mom, I think, convinced him to not do it anymore. Right. Awesome. And, um, uh, so he introduced us to the idea of riding and uh, bought us a little Honda XL75, which I think he still has. But uh, we didn't take it much from there, right? So, and it was a it was a 1970s model motorcycle, but uh, it was yeah, I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't get on one now because I'm a little too. Same reason why I don't drive a fast car. I. There's just well, I've owned well, I've owned four Lamborghinis, but I'm not a speed junkie, which is ironic. That is ironic. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that is ironic. Um, but anyway, so back to we'll, let's switch to real estate investing, right? Main thing we want to sit here and talk about. So, you know, you bring up the comment of of being around the right folks, uh, regardless of your profession, right? You, you get around those guys who are the the experts at motocross, you get around those guys who are the experts at real estate investing and it's just going to raise your level of, uh, competence. Right. So how do you go about, uh, when you first started investing in real estate until now, 
right? How do you go about continuing to improve your circle of influence so that you don't get stagnant or, you know, what are the, some of the things that you're doing now to, to kind of help continuously improve that cycle? Well, let me tell you, I, when I first got started, you know, obviously this was quite a few years ago, you know, we didn't have social media, you know, cell phones or, you know, I mean, it was uh, back so far as, you know, flip phones. I mean, you know, you didn't have the digital phones in any of that stuff. So, I mean, we texted, you had to click the seven, you know, three times to get the, you know, the wire or whatever it was you had to get, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it, it wasn't like it is now. So, and Unfortunately, I, I never was really good at networking and I was always a bit of a lone wolf, which is kind of how I, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day on a little bit of a sort of a limiting belief concept in which I didn't have, you know, I was a very mm-hmm. motivated individual. And when I got started, it was kind of like, um, you know, I, I was just driving for dollars, but we didn't call it driving for dollars back then. We just called it looking for houses that were boarded up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so we're just, you know, so I, I got in, I just started networking with the brokers and, you know, and of course, since we didn't have internet, you know, deals were more, I say they were more prevalent because there wasn't, they weren't so easy to get to, you know, you couldn't go on yeah. a program and find, you know, have 5,000 foreclosures sent to your inbox, you know, where you got 90,000 investors looking for them. Right. So, I mean, in some ways, I think it was actually easier, but, but as I've transitioned, you know, I, I moved forward and, and people are always asking me, well, God, how did you buy, you know, 400 plus apartment complexes by yourself? I said, well, hell, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good and you bad, know? right? Yeah. And, you know, and when I, so after I, I did it and, you know, thinking back on it now, I mean, cert- yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was work. It was, it was, you know, difficult times and. And there were a lot of times where I really did wish that I had other people helping me, but I just didn't know. Yeah. And not the syndication wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, this is just, you know, I built, I built my first set, um, uh, probably, uh, early two thousands. And then, um, you know, I bought, um, I bought my first set that was pre-built in 2010. And, um, you know, I just didn't think nothing about it. I just did it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I just worked my way through that. And then, um, and then as I, you know, circle back around, I've, um, decided to take a bit of a different approach, you know, seeing how things have changed, you know, the syndication model is much more prevalent now with, you know, the new, uh, you know, the new, uh, exemption rulings and things of that sort. So it's, um, it's changed things and changed things a lot. So I just decided that, you know what, I'm older and more experienced and I just don't want to have to go through that much work again. Yeah, you know, no. I, I, I would, I would much rather uh, share the responsibility and work with other people because, frankly, working by yourself all the time is very, very difficult. And <laughs> yeah, um, I agree, know, I agree. And, and, being able, and it's not, and, and I tell people all the time, I say, you know, it's not that it's like building a house. It's not that I can't go put the tile in. I mean, I had a paint contracting company for almost nine years. I can go paint a house. I can put, you know, I've, I've put roofs on. I can put tile in. But should I? No, right. it doesn't make any sense. You know, so it's kind of like when people are talking about doing deals. And the truth is, there's some aspects that I'm not as good at. You know, I'm not a phenomenal number cruncher. Mm. So for me to sit in front of a computer and crunch numbers all day just ain't my thing. I tend to be a little bit more of a, um, 
you know, a 3000 foot view guy. Yeah. You know, an idea guy. So that's kind of where I'm at on, on that. Yeah. Thing. And you know, you make a good point there about, uh, making the best use of your time. I've got some guys in my mastermind group that they were giving me heck because the house we live in, my wife and I live on now, it's it's somewhat of a fixer-upper, right? It was built in 1979, 1980. hasn't really been touched since. And a lot of the work I'm doing myself and the guys in my mastermind were giving me heck about, is that really the best use of your time? You know, because I'm always giving it to them saying, hey, look, is that right. the best use of your time? You know, is that going to advance your... And, uh, and I'm not the best tradesman, but there's something about just mind numbing work, you know, putting down baseboards, painting a wall that I enjoy every now and then I don't enjoy it all the time, but there's every now and then I've got to just do some manual labor just to reset, you know, um, let's talk about your very first deal. You and I were chatting a little bit before you hit the record button about you house hack your very first apartment deal. Right. So let's dive into that a little bit because I don't know that I've heard that before. Well, actually, so what I did, you know, uh, as uh, you know, through the years when I got started, you know, buying properties, uh, flipping houses, I graduated into building houses and I built houses for a couple of years, for about four or five years. And then, and I always pretty much knew I was going to get into multifamily. I mean, it never, it never was a, oh, I woke up one day and said, let me just try my hand at, you know, apartments. And I always knew I was going to. Now, I, I really got lucky with my first deal in a sense that at the time I was looking for places to build some houses and I just happened up on this, this uh, quasi subdivision that some um, elderly lady had owned mm. and it was like, it was built like a T and it was okay. laid out and I, and it was laid out, you know, a T it was subdivided out into these uh, lots. And when I got to looking at it, and to this day, I don't know how she wound up doing it, but it was zoned R3, which is, you know, which is uh, or R13, or, or I think. I can't remember the zoning now, but but it was multifamily zoning. So I was like, well, <laughs> hey, you know what? So I just struck a deal with her. I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me just buy a couple of lots at a time. I'll just build the multifamily. I'll just build the, the apartments across them. And then I'll buy a few more lots until I take down the whole thing. And it wind up being that way. I didn't have to buy the whole thing. I didn't have to develop the roads. I didn't have to put in the infrastructure. It was already there. So, you know, so I would have to say that's kind of a, you know, uh, you know, certainly something you don't come across very often. So I just built the units. And then uh, after I got them about halfway built, uh, my wife and my daughter at the time, we actually just wind up moving into one of the units, one yeah. of the three bedroom, two baths. And at the time, nobody even knew I was the owner. They just thought I was just working on the property, building the, you know, <laughs> down there. Never, nobody ever did know I owned them the whole time I lived there that I'm aware of. Well, you say you're lucky, but you had to be looking for this. I mean, you had to be, you know, I think luck's something you make on your own, right? And I think, I think you had to put in some hard work. Again, this was back, like you said, before really the internet age. Right, you had to drive around. Not oh yeah, it was, it was, not driving for dollars. You were driving for houses boarded up. You saw this. You got really creative. You found the owner, which I don't even want to know what that process looked like before. I doubt you could text or or or. Uh, I mean, I imagine you had to go up to the courthouse and look at all these different records, right? Or start well, knocking on doors and asking people, "Hey, who owns that piece of land?" Kind of thing. Well, that's what's funny is um is the pro- she had actually built a duplex on the very first lot. Mm. 
the lady did. So that originally I got the idea of maybe I'll just build some duplexes like she did. And then it turns out that I wind up building uh, eight plexes and, uh, you know, building the whole thing out with eight plexes. And that's how we you know, wind up with a total of 88 units. Well, her, she lived right behind the property. Mm. Her, her, pro, her house backed up to the property. So I think, I don't remember exactly how I found out that she owned them, but I got, you know, I, I met her and talked to her about it, you know, because yeah. I wanted to you know, maybe do the duplex thing. And it just turned out to be better than I had thought it was going to be really. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I would say is just start knocking on doors, you know, and, and if you're running that situation now, there was, um, a, this has nothing to do with real estate investing, but there was a, a huge, there's a huge sunflower field over in Alabama that, uh, we would drive by my wife's like, Oh, I love that. I want to take some pictures in that field or whatever. So I just start going knocking on doors. Hey, who owns that piece of land? And after two knocks, I get the owner. They tell us, Hey, yeah, you, you guys can go out there, whatever. And, um, I imagine it was the same thing, right? Is, is you're just knocking on doors and got extremely creative with that lady to, uh, to work that out. So that's incredible. Hey, real, real quick. Do you, you invest in Atlanta only, or is that just where you're based? No, that's just where I'm based. And okay. I, and, and most all, I mean, all the investing that I've pretty much done up until now has been in Georgia, but I am now I am now looking to try to, you know, I'm expanding into, I'm looking at Alabama, Tennessee, and South Carolina, and, you know, some parts of North Carolina, and, you know, maybe maybe a few areas in Florida, like Jacksonville or something, you know, or yeah. or you know, anywhere that might work out like that. Um, so, Somewhere in so, the Southeast. So, so, yeah, I should say pretty much the Southeast. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's what I know. I know. I know that the best. People talk about all the time, and that's one of the things that I talk about with other people is, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a stay in your lane concept. It's like, you know, I talk to people all the time that say, oh, well, I'll just buy a deal anywhere that's a good deal. Well, you yeah. know what? Yeah. Hell, there's areas where I live that I don't even know, you know, I mean, close by me and it's very close, you know, the construction's similar, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the laws are similar, you know, so, it, you know, the Southeast tends, tends to be the same, but just because there's deals to be made in Ohio and Oklahoma City and Phoenix and Dallas, well, I don't know anything about those markets. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm a big player, uh, you know, maybe that's different. But but for people to just be carting all over the place, you know, you buy a sixty unit somewhere. Well, hell, you got to get on a plane to go look at it. I mean, they don't they don't produce that kind of money to 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 have that much headache to go all over the place. That's just my opinion. Lots of people do it, but it just doesn't make it doesn't make practical sense to me. Yeah, I, I I run into a lot of people who do that too, and and I'm glad they do it and not me. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. I'm glad it's not a requirement of an investor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I was just curious because you know Atlanta is such a huge market. We have to drive through there to go see our in laws, and I don't know how you guys do it. I, I, I just don't like the traffic. You know the Pe- the Peach Pass is one of the best things I've ever purchased. Well, my you know? boat, my houseboat is uh is up 85 on Lake Lanier. And yeah, I have a okay. beach pass to get up there. So that's yeah. uh, you're right. I mean, on 85, that's that's the golden ticket right there. It is. But, it's you're, the but best. you're right. I mean, certain times of the day, um, going through Atlanta can be pretty bad. I mean, so, depending on what time of the day I go, if I need to go like to North Atlanta, I can get there in an hour or I can get there in an hour and 45 minutes. It depends on when I, what time I leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's you- that bad. You, uh, so you first started out doing all this yourself and, and building units and now you're doing syndications. 
but would you rather build something new now or would you rather buy existing? What's, what's your preference today or does it really matter? Well, that's funny. My, my girlfriend actually has been, um, you know, at me about really building something. The only hesitation is, you know, building something, the, the, the few drawbacks to the, well, the pros and cons to building is new construction sometimes can be a little more difficult to raise capital for. And, and then, and also new construction takes a long time. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, um, when you get done, you have a new property and now, so that, so the key to buying something that's pre-existing is that you can buy it, you know, the, the, the big, the largest selling factor or, you know, a key factor that a broker uses is that you can buy it for significantly under replacement cost. Yeah. So if you can do that, then you can buy a much larger property for a much lower price, you know, ideally. And then, you know, that's where you, that's where you make your money. So if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to build something, but now, but prices are so high now, I mean, C-class properties here are going for $75,000 a door. That's crazy. I mean, shit, you can, you can build it for a, you could build a, you know, a relatively similar property, not, you, you know, a C-class or, you know, a, a, a garden style type property, you know, market rate to garden type, as opposed to building some highfalutin, you know, A-class, you know, really, really high. Luxury, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, that's different. I but appreciate build- you making that clarification because when, when you said that, that's where my mind went because that's what we typically look at. We, I stay away from the class A's um, somewhat for the most part. Um, because we're interested in the cash flow, right? And and not not so much the appreciation. So that I'm glad you make that clarification because um, a lot of people are not, probably not thinking that. They're like, oh, I can get you know best neighborhood for this or or whatnot. That's that's good. Well, it is, it is a very it is a very uh, it's a very distinct or a distinction that needs to be made, and, and people need to try to understand that at least a little bit. When you're talking about classes. You know, you also have different types of construction. You know, you have when you have class A high rise. I mean, you're getting into a whole nother different type of construction. You know, inner city type stuff, or you build garden style apartments. Garden style apartments are built more like a house. Yeah. Whereas other, you know, other types of properties are, are there. You know, they're metal stud, concrete, and how you know higher off the ground, and they're just built totally different. So, so the cost of construction is much different, but. But when you got something you're paying, you know, something that's built in the seventies, you're paying seventy five thousand a door for. I mean, God, it that almost don't even it just don't make any sense anymore. Yeah, and, what what is the cap rates you're running into right now on, on something? Right like? now, at least you know, right here at least in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. Well, I guess even Carolinas. Really, I mean, it's very it's very common at this point to be paying a six or six and a half cap. For us, for a steep glass property. Yeah. And to me, that's just, it's just that's really ridiculous. expensive. <laughs> but, <laughs> to me, it uh, is. But, I, but I, I will, I will tell you one of the biggest problems that, that we run into. And I, I, I was even wanting to write a, you know, a blog or some sort of an article or something about it was basically, you know, the pixie dust and the OMs and the, and, you know, the brokers OMs is basically if you could buy a property at a six and a half cap on its current operations that needed full interior renovations, use as an example. And then you could raise the rents 150 bucks a month over the course of the next, you know, year to, you know, 18 months or 24 months or whatever. 
then you can get, you know, you could get it up to, let's just, let's just theoretically say, get it up to a 10 or 11 capital, you know, get a four or five, you know, basis point spread by doing that. Then that makes sense. Then, then that you, then you're stabilizing it. You're getting it fully fixed up and you're getting it to, to that point where somebody sh- might should pay a six and a half cap, mm. but you can't pay a six and a half cap on the numbers, what it's going to be after the fact. And that's yeah. what I'm finding consistently, consistently, consistently that people are doing. And that just tells me that, that there's still more money out there than there is since. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, right now, I mean, we, no, we you're right. About, we could, we could, we could, we could talk about all these nuances that people talk about. You know, the sky's falling. We're going to get a recession. You know, when's it coming? Nobody has a crystal ball. But the truth of the matter is, when you see when people are just consistently overpaying, and you know they're overpaying because they they got money. Syndicators want to raise money, so while they can get it, they want to keep raising it. They want to keep buying. Yeah. At some point. Like the old adage say, the piper has got to be paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with you. And, and, and it has been frustrating for me to kind of sit back and, and say, okay, I'm going to take my, pump my brakes a little bit. I'm not going to try to do anything. And then I kind of took an approach where you, like you did. I didn't uh, apartment hack my first deal, uh, but I did syndicate it with a couple of guys. And then now I'm to the point where I've invested in two different, uh, other apartment complexes where, um, where I'm just a, a, a limited partner. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm enjoying this side because there's not, I mean, it, you know, I crack on the, the phrase passive investing all the time because I don't yeah. as passive or it's not truly passive, but it's more passive than syndicating a deal. or trying to run a flip or something like that. But, uh, I gotta tell you, I, I'm I'm enjoying the heck out of the limited partner side. And I get well, to rely on those guys who, you know, the, the folks that I'm dealing with, I want to clarify there, they've got a really good track record. You know, I spent a year watching them and and um Well, I know those guys well. I know yeah. most of them. And 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 understanding who they are as a person, not just the deals they're putting together. So I've I've started started that way, you know. Um but we're talking about just the overall market, right? Where do you think it's headed? You know, if you had it, what's your crystal ball telling you? Well, this is what I tell everybody when, 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 when everybody starts talking about the market, the recession, what's going to happen. You know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a data scientist. You know, I'm just, I really, my whole career, everything that I do in life, I just work off of freaking good old fashioned common sense and what I see going on around me. And, you know, and I, and you, I I sort of relate what's going on. You know, when we got hit in 2008, you know, the government and, and, and lenders had been, you know, they went through the 80s, the high flying 80s, the 90s were great. And then everything kind of, you know, leveled out. I think, when was it? Nine, when, was it late? Was it late 90s when we had that one crash, like 97 or 98 or so, nine, or 2000? You know, I was still in high school, exactly. so it wouldn't, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know so we, we kind of had that crash, you know, a, a bit of a recession. And, yeah. then, and then we had, you know, and then everything went back up again. And then in 2008, you know, at that time, We'd have, you know, the whole 100% financing and get it. You know, they were putting people houses left and right. I mean, they couldn't get people in houses fast enough. Yeah. And, and it was inevitable that, you know, a, a bus was coming. Well, when it hit, 
And a lot of people don't understand too, and this gets really off track of the, of the topic of this, but it, it really had more to do with Wall Street underwriting, credit paper and things of that sort. So when, when, when it really hit, I mean, it was like flushing a toilet. Yeah. I mean, I mean it just, everybody took a bath. And when it did, I mean, it was like, you know, everything imploded. So when, you know, when the economy took a 20 or 30% haircut, you know, it, so, so then, so, so everything had to get washed out, so to speak. So now since 2008, now a decade has passed, a little over a decade's passed. And we've had the highest, the fastest and highest growth rate that we've ever had in history, you know, hundred years, or I don't know the, the exact, you know, statistics on that. We've had the highest growth rate. That's why people in the last five to six or seven years have knocked every deal they've done out of the park because fuck all you had to do was buy something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, so <clears throat> essentially, um, they just, um, you know, they were, they were buying things. So, but now, but the lenders have tightened things up. They've done things where it's, um, uh, you know, the people have more, more, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, credit in the deals, right. You know, they have more of their money in the deal. So, so the parameters are much different now. So long story short, we'll get a, um, a, uh, sort of a pullback like you do in the stock market. When something goes up, you get a pullback and, you know, you get stabilization and then, you know, and it kind of bobbles along. I think, I, I think we're kind of at that bobbling along stage where everybody's still buying, they're not really going to pay more because the prices have kind of stabilized out a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, in the last several months, C-class and B-class properties are all kind of getting bought in those same price ranges. Yeah. And that's kind of where they're at. So at this point, it's just going to get, it's, it's going to be whenever people are stop seeing those, those, uh, you know, 20 plus percent IRR returns. You know, I talked to an investor the other day and, uh, uh, she actually said that you know she paid her her, her initial investors back sitting in the last couple of years paid them back so much the the returns were so high that she had actually you know inadvertently conditioned her investors to receive those you know exorbitant returns that they actually <laughs> some of them didn't even re, and reinvest back with her in other deals because she said hey I can't promise that stuff you know I don't mm. know if I'm going to triple your money you know because. Yeah. The, those values are not there, not like there anymore. And there's a lot of nuances of that. You know, there's only so many properties that were built in the seventies and eighties. There's only so many properties built in the eighties and nineties and so forth. So you take all those individual properties, you know, 50, 60, 70, you know, 80% of those properties have been bought up, renovated, resold, or are now at the point of, you know, their five to six year holds through syndicators. And now they're trying to sell those properties. So, the amount of properties that are out there, uh, you know, to buy and flip and get that, that exorbitant forced return, there's just not as many of them available. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of factors at play there. So I guess a lot to ask you a question, you know, well, I don't think we're going to see we're nobody, everybody says I'm going to wait to invest until, you know, we get another recession, but I always tell everybody, Hey, you know what? The only time, the best time to invest is, is anytime. Yeah. It, when you buy something, if it makes sense, you just, you, it makes sense and whatever, you know, whatever makes sense to you, but it has to make sense from a cash flow and income perspective. But yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And kudos to your friend, um, for not putting herself or her investors in a peculiar situation, right? If they're used to getting these checks and she's, and she's like, wait a minute, 
we really hit the uh, ball out of the park on this one. It's not going to be that great going forward, right? She could have really did herself a, a disfavor by, by overpromising on that. So that's incredible. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that just take the money and, and run, so to speak. But what does, so one of the things, so now you're moved on to syndications. I want to make sure we cover this part because we're running up on time. But right now, you're looking for people to partner with to, for syndications. You're, you're looking for opportunities and, and those folks. What does it look like to do a deal with, with Ernest Harvin and apartmentbuys.com? What does that look like? What I, I, what I try to do is I don't find as many deals. I, I see a lot of syndicators that have kind of adopted a model where, you know, and I always preface this, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's not the way I'm choosing to go at the moment, but there's so much money out there, you know, and, and there's, and there's fewer deals. So to get a deal done, you're going to have to buy a deal where there's just not as much upside. So you can, you can buy a deal, raise capital, and, and just get a deal done so that you're doing something. So you can buy a deal, you can create a yield play for your investors and you know, using the, the property as the vehicle. And then the more deals you raise capital for, then you can, you can operate as an assets under management type concept. Instead of, so what I, what I always refer to that is they're making money off the deal as opposed to on the deal, which is why a lot of syndicators are going to these, you know, 80, 20. I mean, I saw one the other day, it was 85, 15 split. And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, I'm an operator. I'm a find, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a look for the deal, acquire the deal, renovate the deal. And, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I'm not 15%. Even if I was the only GP, I'm not taking 15%. Yeah, it's low, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, there's just there's nothing there. So when I see a deal like that, and I, and I actually told some LPs the other day on another call, I said, you know, I said, you as an LP, I said, it's you know, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just be aware because they always say, well, I just want to invest in deals that are conservative. Well, mm-hmm. if you're investing in a deal that that a GP is willing to take that low of a split, to me, that's a concern. You yeah, know, no, why, it's is a- it so, why is it so conservative? So. It's a great point. You know, one of the things you got to want to do is if you have a general partner, you want him to stay motivated, him or her to stay motivated in the deal. Right. And if that property is not producing and even if it is producing and they're only getting 15% of the cut, how motivated are they going to keep going after, you know, I don't know. That's a very excellent point. I've never thought about due diligence in a deal where um, you look at the split, right? Because I've seen them all over the board, 64 mm-hmm. down to what you just said, 85-15. I have not run into one 90-10 yet. Um, I've analyzed some deals where it only made sense for the investors if it was a 90-10, and I was like, okay, it's not a deal for me. <laughs> well, know? yeah, it does. It, it's not even a good deal for the, um, you know, and I always, and I always, and I see a lot of packages where, you know, they always say this is a conservative underwritten deal. But, you know, I've looked at webinars where they quite literally are almost looking at ancillary income as their basis to increase revenue. You can't you can't depend on other ancillary income. You can't depend on late fees, pet feed, laundry feed. Oh, wow. That's, to me. I mean, you can put a little bit in there because there's some of that stuff that you can kind of depend on. You know, if you got three years records, you know, say, and you had $5,000 a, 
a year in ancillary income, you say, okay, you can plug that in. But don't count that as, you know, where you're going to raise revenue. Don't say I'm going to do better or, you know. Mm. And I see guys a lot of time, they say, well, we're just going to manage it better or we're going to manage it because we have other properties. You know, there's some, there's some, there's some basis to that, but, you know, I just think every property should stand on its own. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and again, you know, I look at the deal for the deal because I'm looking at the deals as if, well, and, you know, and traditionally all the deals that I did up until now, it was just my money. Right. You know, so yeah. I didn't have, I didn't, so it wasn't like, I'm going to put this money here and I'm going to collect some fees because guess what? There wasn't no fees to collect. It was either the deal made sense or it didn't. Yeah. You know, when uh, I had Joe Fairless on, um, pretty sure you know who that guy is, but he, oh, yeah. he, um, he and I were talking about a uh, similar question, right? And he said, look, you invest on the merits of the deal. If the merits of the deal pass, then, then you should pursue it, right? So very similar to what you're saying there. Is, it's, That's what I say. I mean, yeah. it just, it doesn't make sense to do the deal when it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it, and, you know, and they, and these are, this is, and we could talk about this all day long, you know, sure. yeah, that, yeah. that's really how I feel about it. And people always say, you know, you, you owe, you know, you, you owe to your invest. If you're going to take somebody's money, then you owe it to them to be good stewards of their money. You yeah. know, preservation of their capital, number one, profit second. And, you know, and, and, and your reputation, you know, if you care about your reputation, then, you know, all you need is one bad deal to go south because you're an idiot and you know, it's, you're done. Well, I mean, some people can recover, but yeah, it's, it's hard to, some of the things that I've seen is it's hard to recover. Right. And the reputation in this industry, I, I think is, is huge. So, uh, it's a small world. I can tell you that we just got back from Baltimore at Rod Cleese event, which was a phenomenal event. And I have to tell you, you know, it, you, you just, you can't imagine how small the world is. I mean, I've got guys in California that I'm friends with and they're sending me deals going, hey, I've got this broker sent me a deal in, uh, you know, in, uh, in Alabama or Georgia, wherever it was. I said, yeah, I said, they sent it to me too. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And you get to thinking, it's like, and when you get a deal package from a broker, well, you ain't the only one they sent it to. <laughs> Regardless of what they tell you. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not, you're not their best friend. Um, so somebody who wants to invest with you or partner with you, do they have to be a millionaire? They have to, I mean, what's the, what's the, and and I'm going to, let me preface that by saying we're not your legal counsel. We're not, you know, CPAs or attorneys or anything like that. But if somebody wants to invest in one of your syndications, what does, uh, what does that look like? What what kind of requirements that would I have to check off to, to partner with you on? Everything that I'm working on right now is, is primarily going to be done under 506C. So the 506C ruling is essentially the ruling to where you can basically advertise anywhere you want. You can openly solicit money. You know, I can take out a billboard on I-75 if I want to. But the caveat to that is they do absolutely have to be an accredited investor, which, you know, if anybody Not sophisticated. listens but accredited, right? And you have to yeah. approve. You have to prove that accreditation. It's not just based off of uh, your uh, your word. Your word. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, ideally, you know, I think, or, or, I think, or initially, they were going about it from the perspective of, um, of you know, being able to sort of self-certify. But now, because 
Um, you know, as things have progressed and SECs tighten up a little bit, you know, most syndicators or most even attorneys are recommending that, you know, that you basically third party certify at this point. So, yep. you know, to, to CYA. So it's, um, so yeah, I mean, so at this point we're, we're, that's what we're working under right now is 506C. Okay. So, um, so they would, they would have to meet accredited status. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, as we wrap up, Ernest, I've enjoyed our time. Uh, hopefully this is not the, the only time we do this, but I want to make sure we know how to get in touch with you. Uh, I've got a links to apartmentbuys.com. You have a uh, boat cast coming out soon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were joking around about that. You got a recording podcast recording studio on your boat, which I'm a little bit jealous. Well, if I can shamelessly plug the name of it, it'll be multifamily insights exposed and uncensored. Okay. No, so it's kind of like it's, it's like me talking about the the ins and outs and nitty gritty, you know, of what it takes to be in the apartment complex, comp, apartment business. And my famous saying is, it's not all cupcakes and rainbows. That's right, <laughs> and it's not right. No, it's, uh, that's one thing that uh, I try to make sure everybody knows is that we don't. Uh, we have good things and bad things. I had somebody call me out because I posted something. We actually had our um, very first loss when we sold a property um basically the property it was a buy and hold but the the property i held for three years and when i sold it do all the math right ended up costing me like 12 grand to hold on to this property oh you came out good (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but you know what he didn't see is that you know we just sold another one a couple months before where it was a 428 percent return and I was, if I'm ever going to take a hit, this tax year is the year that I want to take a hit, right? And it was, it was in an area that I don't want to be in anymore. It was a property that I just, I didn't pay attention because I didn't give the respect that it needed. And so I just kind of let it go. So um, anyway, I don't know. Well, you know what? Let me, let me just throw something in there just real yeah. quick. I know we got to go. And then, you know. People, yeah, the sun's up. So The sun's up now. So now I know it's time know. to go to work. I can see. <laughs> Uh, people always talk about, you know, what's your worst deal? What's your best deal? You know, the, the funny truth is I've never really had a bad deal. I mean, most, almost all the deals I've ever done, I've knocked them out of the park. Now, some single family houses, you know, I held some and didn't make much money. I think I actually had one property that I held for about three or four years. I think, yeah, about three or four years that actually uh, I wind up writing a check when I went to closing. But what I want to emphasize about that is, you know, nobody's perfect. Even stock traders make bad trades. You know, real estate guys make bad, you know, they sometimes they don't call it right. Sometimes they miscalculate construction costs, whatever. You know, that did, just because you did a bad deal, just because you did something wrong, doesn't mean that you don't know what you're doing. If you take, if you do 10 deals and eight of them make a lot of money and two of them didn't, so, you know, so just simple accounting, you did take the loss from that, deduct it against your profits on the other eight. We still made a lot of money. So, yep. so are you, are you still a winner or, or are you a loser because you didn't do good on two deals? Yeah. I'm a lot better off <laughs> personally, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things, and this is where I struggle with, you always try to take the lessons learned, right? So the one, well, yeah, that's what I was going to tell you. You don't, you, yeah. only learn, you only learn the lessons in the bad times, not in the good times. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. I, I, I want to change that about myself if I can, but 
the, you know, it's, it's always easier to reflect on what went wrong than to reflect on, Oh, what went right? Let me repeat, you know, what went right. But, um, you're You're absolutely right. So, but you know, I, I look at that deal where we lost money and I'm like, all right, what did I learn out of that? Okay. I learned there's an asset class I don't want to be in. There's a neighborhood that I don't want to be in. Um, we had to replace some uh, septic tanks and do a lot of stuff that I, that was not planned for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is it was it worth that twelve thousand uh, dollar fee? I don't know. I don't. That's where yeah, I, but, that's but, where but, I struggle. But you're but you're not looking at it. You're not looking at. Don't look at. Just erase that whole thought. Look at it. This is how I always look at anything that I had to spend money on that didn't pay off. Say you got into a deal, you had to put up fifty thousand dollars earnest money. Hey, you don't want to lose earnest money because you know it sucks. But you what you have to look at it, or you really have to relegate it to is cost to do in business. Yeah, you have cost to do in business. If you said, "Hey, I had to spend fifty thousand dollars to find out if that was a good deal," it wasn't. I didn't lose my earnest money. I just spent fifty thousand dollars to not get into a really crappy deal. I was going to lose a lot more in. Very true. Very true. Well, Ernest, we'll leave it with that, man. Uh, best best way to get in touch with you. Um, the best way to reach me is either through my website, apartmentbuys.com or just Ernest, uh, at apartmentbuys.com. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, I will definitely link up with you again pretty soon. Well, I'd like to do this again soon when you got a, a new, uh, I want to pick your brain on new construction. I don't know why it's one of those things. It's one of those itches. I think I'm going to have to scratch eventually no time soon uh but there's i've uh one of the investors do have this little do have this little uh little uh town home development we've been eyeing maybe doing something right up in north part of atlanta you know if you, yeah. you really want to scratch it <laughs> i don't know if it's that big of an itch but there's just something there that you know i went through this process where i thought i wanted to own a car wash and I even, I, you know, got real close on putting one under contract. And and everybody I talked to is like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do hey, it. Let me tell you something, man. Car, uh, uh, car washes. Um, I actually looked into that a while back. Even went to Car Wash U and all that yeah. stuff down in yeah. Florida. Um, you know, it's like any other business. You know, if you can get it right and you get your your operations down, it's a it's a cash cow. It's not, yeah. you know, it's it's a business. It's not a real estate venture. It's a you know, it's a business. It is so a business. You have to look at it from a from a cash flow perspective. But yeah, it's a it's a good that in self storage. But I, I think those two are not bad. Yeah, yep. yeah. I've looked at I've I've got my own one of those too, but uh, they're they're wanting too much money for it right now. So we'll uh, no keep working on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not yeah in this market, right? Uh, Ernest, thanks again, buddy. I will talk to you soon. Absolutely. I appreciate it. See you, buddy. Thanks.